Welcome to the Fellow Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Lesperance. Listen in as I host humble discussions exploring the diverse expressions of Christian spirituality, tradition, and beyond. Enjoy, and safe traveling. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Tonight, I have a very special treat. Um, tonight, a very special person is joining us. His name is Mike Boover, or I like to call him Saint Mike. Um, he is a man of many years, but he's quite the uh, quite the wise man, quite the soft uh, mystic, I'd say. Um, he is one of the co-founders of the Catholic Workers mustard seed here in Worcester and he's got quite the story um, and we're going to get into it tonight and I hope you really enjoy um, so thank you so much Mike for joining us I really was looking forward to talking to you and I'm glad you were available so anyway um, how you doing Mike yeah well glad to be here Peter and, and thanks for that intro um, yes, I am an old timer now, so I, <laughs> I bring some yeah, number of years. So I've hit my seventies, sure. yeah, uh, but I still try to stay uh, somewhat green, still full of sap, you know. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's the ideal, anyway. But you know, you kind of can't always push the river. The old age thing mm -hmm. is happening a little bit, and uh, but not too badly. So. Uh, 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 that's okay yeah so glad to be here peter yeah, thanks for the invite mm -hmm. no absolutely um i think like i think we're gonna get a lot of good stuff out of this conversation for sure you have a lot to offer us um years of service to the poor to the lord to the community around you and like there's just so much we can get out of this conversation so I mean, we'll see where it goes. I'm not really sure exactly where it goes, but I know where we're going to start. And where we always start with these conversations is all about you, um, your spiritual heritage. Where do you find your roots? What are your earliest experiences of that tradition that you grew up in? And and as we go along, you can think about what are what are some experiences, whether mystical or just like mundane, that you that you came across that um, really solidified your faith and kept you kept you going so that's my point of interest here so you can share as much or as little as you'd like okay um well i was born in the early 50s uh in whitensville hospital and so i grew up in blackstone valley spent my childhood in linwood uh, which is a little like township uh if you want to even call it that, it's sort of a French Canadian hamlet in some ways. 
um, between uh, Northbridge and Uxbridge. So part of it lies in Northbridge and part of it in Uxbridge. And, uh, but Linwood was the site of, uh, of uh, really kind of a, a French Canadian Catholicism that kind of was organically connected to that little village there in Blackstone Valley. Uh, and the church I was attended as a uh, young, young person and the school I attended was part of a parish called uh, Good Shepherd in French, Le Bon Pasteur, the Good Shepherd. So I had an image of course of Jesus as a, as a shepherd and there was this beautiful statue there. Uh, I remember a very kindly visage of Jesus, very sweet. Uh, maybe too sweet sometimes, <laughs> but carrying a lamb, you know, on his shoulders. <laughs> and uh, so the image of the Good Shepherd was one that really uh, is dear to my heart. Um, and uh, the Good Shepherd also is uh, very much reminds me of the Sacred Heart, you know, it's love and compassion that keeps drawing uh, itself to need but also one, as one grows aware of one's neediness, one grows aware of a desire perhaps to, uh, to meet, you know, that compassion that, that meets us. Um, so I, I grew up in this uh, small town, very Roman Catholic and French Catholicism kind of dominating the scene in some ways. I have a slice of Irish in me. So there's a, a bit of an Irish Catholic connection too from County Galway. Uh, so my earliest spiritual experiences were really about, about being connected to that little parish church and the spiritual life that was in it. So I became an altar boy when I was sort of like in the first grade, it was very young. But I remember being drawn uh, pretty much to this small little catechism I was given that had an image of God, sort of like you see in a, a, a dollar bill of the triangle with the eye and the sun's rays kind of kind of coming through there. And um, and uh, I was drawn to it almost like, you know, a piece of metal to a magnet. Um, but a sense of, uh, I think it came through but in a childhood way, of course, not not super mature, was that there was this love thing that was happening. I think maybe it took me a longer, a lot longer time to kind of unpack it a little bit, but um, the sense of uh, being connected to a divine root, if you will, uh, the creator uh, creation. Uh, but culturally, the community that was there in Linwood was very, uh, very much. You didn't didn't raise a lot of doubts or a lot of questions. And, you know, you know, you kind of grew up in this kind of faith. Um, and uh, for me, it was outside of my most immediate family, um, the next circle, you know, around of support and and a familial tie. <clears throat> so I identified strongly with the life of faith that was there. It was very sacramental. There was a lot of uh, beautiful ritual. Um, the, there was uh, incense, holy water, 
there was singing. The girls would be singing Thomas Aquinas's Tanta Mergo during benediction. So there was a Eucharistic focus, you know, the mass was at the heart of it. Um, and uh, there was a sense of conformity and maybe kind of a bit of a rote practice of faith in that childhood experience, but it was also something uh, deeply personal that was happening. Hard to explain, you know, but sort of an encounter, um, uh, the place of mystery. And I think that's where the mystical thing comes in, Peter. You know, is we're open to mystery, capital M in a certain way. On the other hand, the kind of Catholicism I was taught was, you know, it was pretty black and white. There was not a lot of mystery attached to it. Was you follow these rules and you do this and you do that and you you kind of go through these rites of passage, uh, sacramental first, you know, confession, first communion, confirmation, all of these kinds of things. Um, and then when I was maybe about, oh, I would say eleven uh until i was about 14 the catholic church had a big ecumenical council in rome vatican vatican ii which really changed the kind of culture that i my early childhood was part of you know we began the altar was turned around we began to have the mass in english rather than latin uh there was uh, a much more of a sense of being able to get a hold of scripture i think um because of the vernacular there was the preaching of course is always in english usually but the latin was actually added to a sense of mystery and all of the ritual really appealed to all the senses you know i think it's the thing about catholicism the candles the light you know water uh, oil uh, bread wine it's 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 really a quite a uh, an appeal to to sense actually uh, in a lot of ways. And, um, uh, but there was also a lot that, you know, uh, uh, that came into question about that time with Vatican II, about that culture that was kind of very conformist. We began to also think, sing Protestant hymns. We began to, you know, think about uh, being in relationship to other Christians in a, a kind of a new way. Um, there was a sense that a uh, guitar, could be brought into church <laughs> and, and you know your place kind of this very kind of beautiful but you know very very centuries radical yeah yeah and uh, <laughs> it was a radical thing yeah the folk mass came into into purview and into earshot and of course for us young people the beatles had hit you know and the you know, the British invasion and the new American rock scene had, had hit. So for us who are young, young, my, you know, someone like myself, um, I liked the changes. They, they were very good. I know a lot of older people and other people felt the changes were, were difficult. Um, so I, I ended up, I ended up, you know, maybe because I was so entrenched in the tradition in part, but also my own personal life my own family of origin, so many different kinds of experiences and influences there. But I had a nun in the eighth grade who really encouraged me to think about becoming a priest. Uh, uh, mostly she thought I, I, could, I could write and I could think and 
to encourage my parents to get some magazines for me, you know. He said, he'll need to know about the church. We need sign magazine. It was this church magazine that um, uh, the Passionist priests had put out out of New York City, but it was a pretty broad, rich, culturally rich Catholic journal. And you should subscribe to that for him. And then U.S. World uh, News and World Report. You need to know what the, you know, the news. But this harkens back theologically someone like Karl Barth, you know, in, in Germany. Uh, the confessing community where he used to say you have the bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other you know that was a a kind of uh uh i guess you'd say a christian uh orthodoxy that came out of you know the the, the rise of fascism and opposing fascism uh, as christians evangelical uh christians you know uh, christians with a message that opposed, you know, uh, Hitler on Christian grounds. So that Barman Declaration was very important. Barth was very involved with that. And in some ways, that that movement also influenced liberation theologians in Latin America and Central America. So Barth, you know, it was the kind of talk about ecumenism. <laughs> you know, it really met there, you know, and you had other other Christians who be later on when I went to college and got to meet some other theolo uh, theologians who were influential uh, connected to Catholic worker. One was uh, William Stringfellow, who had written an ethic for Christians and other aliens in a strange land. So there was an evolution, of course, in my my process, growth process. And I think largely my adherence to the faith, it was largely uh, external in a way. You know, you observed kind of the cultural norms and so forth. So I ended up going to a high school seminary, and then it was like being a little monk for years. <laughs> it was like, you know, being the Dalai Lama or something. You know, you you you're being prepared for a you know kind of a life. Uh, we we had almost like a monastic regimen, a routine. We'd have early morning prayer in the chapel. We'd have evening prayer, like the monks would do. Prime and Compline, we would do Prime and Compline. We would have a mass in late afternoon. It wasn't mandatory attendance, but it was like a prep school in many, many ways. But we discussed and uh, faith and matters of faith. Uh, Where did you go to the seminary? That was uh, La Salette a Seminary in Enfield, New Hampshire, which was housed in an old Shaker oh. village up there. And I also had a Quaker history teacher there who was a big influence on me, which this is the other critical part of my growth is that uh, the war in Vietnam was raging when I was a student. Mm. And I know there was some priests who were in prison there protesting the Vietnam War, the Berrigan brothers. And I used to think about them every day, uh, that they were in prison and they were men of conscience. Wow. You know? And uh, and I, this Quaker, a Quaker history teacher I had kind of turned me on to thinking about politics, small p politics in a new way. But he had come from a Quaker background where war resistance was important. And um, so I ended up um, uh, becoming kind of a Catholic, bit of a Catholic hippie toward the end mm. of my high school years there. And it wasn't going over with that well with the authorities who <laughs> were running the place. So I ended up, um, and I, I had my own issues, to tell you the truth, too. I, I kind of was had these kind of anarchistic tendencies. and. I was a student leader and you were supposed to be, kind of be a law and order guy. And I just did not have that kind of thing in me. Um, wow. So, so I, I ended up. Oh, I had a quick question. Yeah, sure. Well, so like, it seemed like most of your, um, your adherence and growth within the faith seemed more intellectual. 
or was there was there something mystical or experiential about it as well? Yeah, yeah. Well, that certainly time. that intellectual part was uh, a big part of it for me. Uh, we did a lot of reading though uh, before supper. You know, it was four years. I was just like you know, it was a, like a boarding school. So before supper, we'd have a half hour of spiritual reading. So you're always reading a spiritual book. Uh, that that was kind of required, and I'm kind of grateful for it because it it gave you a lot of discipline. And usually they're about spiritual topics. You could pick a book uh, that you wanted to read, but there was a half hour devoted to just spiritual reading, plus you know all the academic stuff. So there was that, and there was also in chapel the prayer, the life of prayer, even though it was kind of formalized in some ways there, you got a sense of how the priests and brothers were living, uh, who were our teachers. And, and it, by osmosis, you kind of picked up a spirituality uh, that would be, that did involve the mystical element. I would say this, Peter, that I had a longing for the house of God when I left that place, because on Sunday mornings, we would have a big procession through a cloister, we had this cloister. It was really quite idyllic setting for, to be in high school, <laughs> really. But uh, when, you, when you started to get interested in girls and, and you know, about your junior year or something, it, it kind of, you know, the I idyllic part of, of uh, being a good, you know, uh, we had cassocks and, and crosses and you know, it was like old timey, old timey for the first couple of years. And then we had kind of a revolutionary kind of, spirit that ran through the place as the anti-war movement gained more ground and people you know the first earth day was held and during that time and uh, so there was this intellectual part but i would say that on sunday mornings we would sing in procession to jesus christ our sovereign king that hymn as we would we would process outside and into the chapel this beautiful marble chapel uh, also with these kind of very Greek pillars in the front and so forth. Uh, so I remember it kind of being an echo of, uh, I rejoiced when I heard them say, let us go up to the house of the Lord. You know, it was this liturgical life did have a mystical dimension to it and a longing, you know, and a desire. I don't think we were very mature, but there was something yeah. there that definitely, you know, got a hold of us. Yeah. I really like that idea of like osmosis and like, um, you know, it's like when you're, you're young, you're a sponge, right? And like, when you put a sponge in this kind of environment, you're just going to soak up so much, you know, yeah. at such a young age. It's, and it's that formation, but even deeper than like physical, psychological formation, but like spiritual formation, right? You're being mm -hmm. formed into something. Um, and it's kind of neat, like, I, I what I admire about the Catholic communities in a lot of ways is they are very communal in a sense. Most of them tend to be pretty communal and uh, have that um, that focus on like being formed by the community in the community. It's kind of a, a something that we've lost in the modern era. This idea of like communal community in general, like in general, it's it's a lot of individual about my my life my my journey which is true you know and, and maybe i know later on maybe you can get a little bit into that like what is the balance between that personal and, and community community aspect and i know peter marin had a lot to say about that right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
We can right. get into that later, though. Yeah, yeah. Clock, though. Yes. Well, I think that was the other thing is you, you picked up something uh, about the Shaker communalism, too, with the, just the architecture of the place, you know, how the Shakers really, they they really had a, a, a community of shared goods. You know, they, they really kind of um, had also mystical spirituality. So they would dance. They they uh, had these kind of spiritual visits. Um, they would have uh, dreams and artwork that would kind of uh, kind of uh, arise out of these mystical experiences in dance or in 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 even trances that they would have. Um, and the Shakers were also pacifists. And I remember my history teacher, who was a Catholic priest from Leominster. He invited a Shaker nun to come down from Sabbath Day Lake in Maine, one of the few left, you know, in the world. Mildred Barker, she came to our theater, and which had been an old Shaker workshop at one time. It's being restored to, to it now. It's a Shaker museum now, the, the seminary. Um, and she sang Shaker hymns to us, beautiful hymns. The Shakers wrote these beautiful, beautiful, you know, spiritual hymns. And so we were, we were picking up really some very precious and we also had a very high ethical content you know we were learning about the holocaust i saw films you know about the holocaust my teacher would remind me this was not that long ago that this this terrible stuff happened so you left there with a sense of, re, of moral responsibility and part of that for me you know the war the vietnam war uh, leaving there uh, was to be a, a Catholic, but someone who opposed that war. Not all of my priest teachers opposed it. My Quaker teacher certainly did. And he and I ended up speaking against the war. And I had classmates and others who who, who were for it. Um, and I think uh, that interruption of convention uh, because the war interrupted your moral life. It was you had to make some hard decisions about what you would do. Uh, it made a difference. So where would I fit being a Catholic and a, and, a, and a hippie at the same time? How how would you make that work? Well, the Catholic Worker Movement had been doing that since 1933. You know, Peter Moore and Dorothy, they wouldn't call themselves hippies exactly, but they were doing the communal life. They were doing the works of mercy as opposed to the works of war. They were doing hospitality. They were living like the early Christians were in Acts, you know, in a lot of ways. They were, they had that sort of pre-Constantinian sense of uh, communal life and and praying and working and sharing uh, um, and economics of sharing. And the Catholic worker was living that in the 20th century. And so when I learned about the Catholic worker, and I did meet Dorothy Day, I went to my first public school at Worcester State, Dorothy Day spoke there, and I heard her. And actually, my 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 future wife was there, sitting there, maybe seven or eight of us sitting there, listening to Dorothy Day, speaking about the work in New York City at St. Joseph's House Hospitality at the time. It was maybe around 1971, 1972. And, um, and then I met Catholic worker priest, uh, Bernie Gilgan, and I was kind of smitten with the vision of the Catholic worker so in, in some ways, as I look back now, so many years later, uh, you know, I put in, you know, a lot of time at the mustard seed a decade after I left Enfield, the seminary, and then um, have 
been in the movement ever since, uh, the Catholic worker, um, but also have been involved with many ecumenical ad adventures. So in involved with, you know, Protestants and evangelicals as well. So there's also the Jesus movement that came around in the 1970s. I remember going to the Baptist church in town and hanging out with some of the folks there and having a spiritual experience that I, I would describe as mystical too. Um, oh yeah, that's funny because that's my spiritual heritage is, mm -hmm. um, you know, my father was, you know, quote unquote saved in the, in the Jesus movement. He grew up Catholic, mm -hmm. you know, nominal Catholic, but kind of fell away from the faith as he got older. And then, and then he was in high school, uh, sorry, college at UMass Amherst and someone, this guy named Dan Rigg witnessed to him and kind of explained to him the gospel and. It just it kind of like stuck in there like mentally, but then he was um, he was up in Hampton Beach and he was listening to this like Christian folk band play and and he walked out to the beach and just like all of a sudden like just had this overcoming oh he was overwhelmed by this feeling of God's presence and love and he just never turned back since then so it's kind of it's kind of neat like that was really like a really powerful time. It was like a revival time, uh, very interesting at the intersection of like the war and such drastic changes in, in uh, politics. And there was a lot going on then, like all over the world. It was, mm -hmm. It's pretty nuts. I mean, it kind of reminds me of this time. I feel like we're on the precipice of something, you know, at this point in time. Things are changing in a lot of ways. So I don't know. It's very interesting. But yeah, as you were saying, mm -hmm. actually, why don't, you, why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, I think I, you might have shared a little bit about that experience you had at that, uh, was it like a tent meeting or something at a Baptist church? Well, uh, it was not quite a tent meeting. It was like a regular Baptist church. And the, the, the older guys were there, it's these young people who were kind of in the Jesus movement. But it actually is very conventional Baptist, kind of almost Southern Baptist kind of uh, uh uh, feeling and the traditional, you know, receiving Jesus and all, and and I think maybe that was important in terms of being receptive, you know, to 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 Jesus and uh, and His love. So I would I say I, I had a similar experience, but I did know about a young man. There was a young man there by the name of his last name was Chelsea, and because he was a Baptist Christian and didn't believe in killing others, he ended up becoming a medic and went to Vietnam as a medic but non-weapon non carrying. And he was killed by a shell uh, in Vietnam that landed on him. And, but I think of him as someone who, out of that time period, but also maybe out of, again, that, that peace thread of Christianity, you know, that just biblical sense that we should be treating each other differently than this, uh, that he, he followed that. And uh, his brother <laughs> was at that that little meeting there and welcomed me as a fellow like young Jesus kid, you know. So uh, that was kind of interesting. Uh, his brother, uh, but uh, that fellow, the elder Charles, uh, uh, he was a um, Chesley, uh, was kind of a um, a model, I think, you know, in some ways of, of perhaps a very conventional Baptist Christian pacifism, which, 
you know, there are there were Christians at that time, particularly like you were saying, Peter, that time period created a kind of a ferment in which you did have radical Christians, you know, um, uh, in the in the reform tradition. And you had a bunch of young radical Catholics who were emerging <laughs> followers of Dorothy Day, but there was a tradition in place. Then of course you have today groups like Sojourners Fellowship, you know, in Washington, uh, or the um, the folks at the uh, the Simple Way in Philadelphia, uh, who are kind of evangelicals with a with a real cultural critique of empire and war making and all of that and greed and so that yeah there is a lot there and there's a rich tradition in america it's just it's not always held up in the mainstream uh, in a way that i think it could be uh, more pronounced and part of my vocation at least has been to give some voice to it you know uh to try to be an educator around some of this um and so, I mean, I've been kind of an evangelist, if you want to say, or propagandist for the Catholic worker <laughs> vision, <laughs> uh, you know, for for a long time. And uh, I'm very imperfect. I think one of the things about faith and growth is that uh, it took me a long time to begin to look and discover sort of this interior reference. And I come out of a tradition that really is is big on that. You know, if you look at the mystics from the Middle Ages, they're real big on that. <laughs> but I didn't. It didn't sink in to a lot of us. I think it was this external connection too. And, and as activists, we didn't really have a temperament that was geared to say contemplation. But then when you get turned onto like Thomas Merton's writings or or even Dorothy Day's writings, she's in the ghetto, but she's deeply prayerful. And the Psalms mm -hmm. are very important to her. She, along with her instant coffee, you know, she write, will write about this. You know? uh, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, um, you know, it's funny because I grew up in the evangelical, but more specifically Pentecostal and charismatic setting. So you know, when you were describe the way you were describing those um, Quakers and Enfield, it reminded me a lot of you know, what I grew up around, a lot of, you know, that seeking the experience of the Holy Spirit, seeking, you know, in worship and dancing and art and, um, you know, visions and tongues and all this, all that kind of stuff. It's really interesting, the overlap there. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, maybe, I was thinking, oh. Oh no, uh, you know, talk about the movement of the of the spirit in a felt way, you know, a perceived, a felt way. Mm -hmm. There is, you know, uh, yes, uh, these charismatic movements uh, in Europe uh, that were very powerful, you know, like that gave birth to the, to the uh, radical reformation, that side of it that was pacifist, the Anabaptists, the Mennonites, the Hutterites, also very communal. And uh, I think, you know, in some ways I feel I do feel connected to those folks, <laughs> you know, and Tolstoy in Russia, for instance, too, his his take on Christianity as a lifestyle, you know, uh, and you know, he was in a, this 
cultural community that was the Russian Orthodox was very ritualistic and very oh yeah oh wow yeah. you know heavy and he was like proposing you know we ought to really be good to the peasants you know and yeah. make changes and educate the poor and uh, yeah at the same time like the Russian Orthodox was also like kind of in bed with the empire you know and yeah. unfortunately and he he had a lot of critique about that right he did. He was also influenced by a, a minister from Hopedale, Massachusetts, you know, our neck of the woods. Uh, no way. He, he writes about this fellow, a Aidan Ballou, who was a minister in Hopedale. He founded Hopedale as a utopian Christian socialist community in the 1850s. In Massachusetts? And, uh, yeah. And uh, wow. <laughs> he, uh, it's very interesting because uh, if you were interested in that, Tolstoy mentions Aidan Ballou in his book, The Kingdom of God is Within You, said this this guy is probably, at the time Tolstoy was the world's greatest writer, you know, he was known as the world's greatest writer, but he was saying, this guy in Massachusetts who isn't well known, he's the cat's meow, not me, kind of thing, you know, wow. I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of like, except that uh, Tolstoy was kind of the cat's meow too, you know, uh, but he took, he took cues from Baloo. And then it's very interesting because young, the young lawyer Gandhi took his cues from Tolstoy. And then Martin Luther King Jr., who's a minister, Christian minister, takes his, his uh, cues you know, uh, from Gandhi in some ways, leading uh, a Christian movement against you know, wow. racial inequality. And then you have this great, this great, uh, mystic out of the African-American community in Florida as a kid, Howard Thurman, if you're not familiar with him, he really, you know, we think about Protestant mystics. Uh, he is definitely one of those, uh, kind of a nature mystic, but also biblical, <laughs> biblically rooted and able to say, what does Jesus have to say to the man whose back is against the wall and he's addressing black men and women in the 1960s who were up against Bull Connor's dogs and fire hoses and, you know, incredible racism. We are still struggling with these issues, sad to say. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, but there's really a sense too, I think, uh, of this prophetic thread that runs through uh, Christian life. And in some ways it's complemented by a pastoral emphasis hmm. so it's not that just to tell people off but to love you know to love even your enemies which is the hottest thing to do of course you know yeah mm. it's really yeah, hard to love also, my friends sometimes to never mind your enemies yeah yeah i love that about the pastoral part about it because there are a lot of people who are willing to like speak intellectually to things or they're even willing to protest but there's not really any regard for, well, what do I do about my enemy? You know, what do I do about um, meeting people where they're at? You know, um, it's kind of, I mean, on, in some ways, for some people, it's like this kind of this just take it all, burn it and throw it all away. And whoever doesn't swim, they, they, they drown, you know? Um, and then, yeah, so you kind of need that, that, ecumenical spirit you know to uh, be a mediator between you know mm -hmm. yeah yeah 
being open to dialogue, which is is a charism of a group I've been connected to these last years called the Focolare movement. Their big thing is unity, and and you know from really taking their cues from John the Evangelist uh, uh, and Jesus uh, saying, "Oh, the Father and I are one." You know, may they be one. We are one. The sense that of making a, a very bold commitment to that kind of that kind of unity requires you have to be committed to dialogue too. If you're going to be committed to yeah. that, don't you? Yeah. And that's not mm-hmm. easy work, <laughs> admittedly. It's nice to stay you know, in your in camps that you're comfortable with. And I, I'm I'm like that too, to a large extent. But uh, mm-hmm. you're right, you're raising a very good question, Peter, about what about the depth of our pastoral responsibility? You know, uh, look how far Jesus was willing to go to reach the other. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, I guess that's always our standard, right? Um, even even though there are people who, who exemplify that and, and image God in that sense, they image Christ in that sense. And um, like ultimately we have this, this picture, but then in a sense, you know, they are the body of Christ, you know, those, those people who really exemplify saints, I'd say, you know, mm-hmm. who are live saintly but are able to live like Jesus, they are their body. Who was it that said Christ has no body but yours? Yeah, that's Teresa of Avila. Yeah, she was a Carmelite, you know, 16th century Carmelite nun. Yeah, she's she's something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, you find people like, you know, I think in, in the tradition that you're coming from, maybe not always the charismatic side of the house, but charismatic in terms of personality. Someone like Shane yeah. Clearborn, you know, down in the, oh yeah, in Philadelphia, the kind of work I he's doing, Shane. yeah, that they, we're kind of kindred, you know, uh, the Catholic well, worker he, and some of those folks too. It's wild because he actually spent years with Mother Teresa in India before she died. Yeah, he had gone to Calcutta. Yeah, yeah, it's insane. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's crazy because obviously he grew up like evangelical, like myself, and then. He was just so, um, I don't know, the message of Jesus, it started to mean something different to him in a radical way. And he's like, I don't think we're taking Jesus seriously enough. I don't think we're taking the idea of let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven seriously enough, you know? Mm-hmm. And and I think a lot of people are getting tired of, a lot of people are tired of just kind of this, um, you know, lack of, what's the word? I don't know. Um, sidelining, you know, just being, being mm-hmm. on the sideline. Sideline yeah. Christians who don't seem to want to play an active role in, in the reconciliation of, reconciliation of the world, you know? Yeah. Well, I think there's, there's a kind of a, a thing that's true for all of us is that we profess one thing and often our behaviors are another. You know, St. Paul was sort of an expert in that, wasn't he? He kind of let us know, you know, I I don't do what I, you know, should. Ought to. Uh, Who who will deliver me from the body of this death? This is the other thing I think about uh, coming out of a scriptural uh, root and living out of a biblical witness. I think, again, of Bill Stringfellow's sense of that. 
But the, the one thing about Bill's sense is that when it came time to deal with the powers and principalities, one could be bold and, and saying, you know, or you think sometimes in the times when Jesus was very bold, uh, Herod, you fox, or, you know, uh, you whiten sepulchers. I mean, those are bold statements, you know. <laughs> you you uh, you realize that there was an edge to him too, right? Uh, and but there's a balance. Father, forgive them; they know not what they do. Is you know, it doesn't get more pastoral oh, yeah. than that. You know, more deeply Jesus. pastoral than that. that Jesus goes all had the, the wisdom. Way. Yeah. Jesus had the wisdom to know exactly the right words to say. He was really a genius, you know, when he really, <laughs> the exact yeah. right words to say to the powers, to the needy, to the, to those who are in delusion. I mean, on the, sitting on the cross and saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He recognized the spirit of delusion that had overcome them, of violence, that there was something deeper um, and almost, you know, it's kind of weird because it almost seems like he's uh, recusing them of guilt by saying, like, yeah, yeah, forget them. they don't, they don't know, they don't have the knowledge, they don't understand, yeah. they don't, they don't have the ability to make an informed decision of what they're doing. There's, there's an illusion happening. There's a delusion, but it's like it had to happen. He predicted it would happen. It's, it's really fascinating. Well, this is a thing about about uh, ignorance because you're raising a point. It's ignorance in a, in a way that he's speaking about because when he says they're not knowing what they're doing, that's that's ignorance, you know. And I think it's true that sometimes we prefer ignorance to to knowledge because we, you know, we suffer with our own pride. We suffer with our own the fact that we don't practice what we profess in 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 a full harmony but i think the he takes that on too you know he, he's trying to get sometimes i think people to when he speaks boldly to people about who he's trying to convert he, it's out of love he's trying to say you know wake up and change your ways you know um kind of thing and um but he's a, he's complex because he brings all these dimensions together. Of course, I think it's the thing about Jesus is that he he um, he keeps you um, uh, in the mystery of his being, too. And some of these dimensions that seem very contradictory, even in Scripture, for me, the way that they make sense is that at a particular time in scriptural writing, there's a point of emphasis being made. And it's in that contextual relationship that I think the interpretive lens is very important for Christians. So there is an intellectual and reasonable side to, to the Christian witness that needs to be reverenced. But there's also the side of revelation. What have we been revealed? And maybe this is where the mystical thing comes in. It's much bigger than, than moral perfectionism. It's mercy that is being given freely. And, you know, um, the uh, the good thief is uh, this is the thing he he takes it and and this is the other thing about us I guess with receptivity so I think of the Christian life is is this receptive thing you know receiving Jesus you know and as uh, our Savior our Lord uh, uh, 
king of our hearts, the king of mercy, of love, compassion. And then there's, uh, Jim Wallace makes this distinction in a lovely book called A Call to Conversion. Um, it's also Jesus with a content. Got to get a hold of the Beatitudes. I hold a sermon on the Mount if you're going to really, really live your faith the way I think that Jesus wants us to live it. Is your brother in need? You know, can you see the man in the ditch, the good Samaritan? You know, and, and Martin Luther King writes about that in one of his essays you know, on the road to Jericho. You begin to see Christians who have these perceptions of the moral demands that Jesus makes, which is also also connected to his gift. So I think of both giftedness, which I think maybe this is the thing that's really about ecumenical Christianity, particularly with Protestants and Catholics. The great gift of of, uh, of the churches of the reform is God is a gift, not an achievement kind of, you know what I mean? But if you read Matthew 25, Jesus kind of says, if you want to be enter the kingdom of heaven, you better be a sheep and not a goat. <laughs> Do this stuff, right? <laughs> Do this stuff. To hear that, you know, to really hear it. Or are you thinking about the people he blesses, which is exactly the opposite of what the world blesses, you know? The poor, mm. the meek, the, you know, the peacemakers, the person, uh, the world, this sort of kind of dichotomy that we see. But the other thing about Christianity is that about Jesus is it's not coming to condemn, but to save. What, what are the implications mm -hmm. of that? And I think at Vatican II, the Catholics, we began to turn to this postural rather than procedural turn of saying, the pains and sufferings of all humankind, these are the pains and sufferings of ours as well, the followers of Christ. And that was a turn toward loving the world, ideally. We haven't done a particularly good, great job of it, but the idea was that we were going to be not just focusing on ourselves, you know, uh, regarding our own piety or our own, our own uh, needs, uh, but to look also at a world in travail, a world in need of redemption, which is, I think, was the lens that Christ had and has and will have yeah. is this is a, a a big redemptive thing it's kind of a <laughs> yeah you know, Amen. Uh, come home come home you know uh, come on to me all who labor and are heavily burdened but one of the things if you try to be moral you realize that you are, you're humbled and then you're heavily burdened so it's very consoling to hear those words <laughs> come to me who yeah. labor you know and i will give you what for activists, nervous activists, this is not an easy thing. Rest, and we'll give you rest. Yeah. And I, I think we began, uh, uh, us Catholic worker kids, uh, this is another element of my journey. We started to hang out with the monks and Spencer. They were teaching us kind of deep meditative prayer, centering prayer. It came out of the, the mystics of the uh, 14th century, which maybe 15th century, 16th century, uh, cloud of unknowing. Um, mystical text uh, in which, uh, again, we got turned on to the interior life. It took a long time, I think, for the lights to go on for this rascal. But the idea that we're meant to, you know, cultivate this life of uh, deep prayer and 
and then intimacy uh, with God, which is really something that's not always easy to uh, talk about or to, uh, uh, but you see once in a while people who live it. And when you do, it, it's the osmosis thing again, Peter. That's how I think sometimes religious education happens. It's not like I'll be in Sunday, Sunday school or catechism class. It's it's seeing someone who is a Christian living out the faith in life, in life, in their prayer life, and in their social life. You know, in their personal, most personal life, and in their most public life, and that the, these elements, by grace, few, they're not contradictory to be, say, a contemplative in action, as I guess as Merton might say, uh, or bringing contemplation and resistance to empire into uh, uh, converse. They're complementary, mm. rather contradictory dimensions of Christian life. You know, I think this is why, you know, I, I semi-jokingly call you Saint Mike. But, I mean, in reality, you are a saint, and we are, everybody who is in Christ and being formed into the image of Christ is a saint, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, but what, what makes someone a saint, like, imagine someone being canonized as a saint, but all they did was intellectually wax and wane on abstract concepts and theological concepts and philosophy, but never mm -hmm. live it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Would they be a saint? Well, we I think we have one that was kind of like that. Thomas Aquinas, he was known oh, as yeah, the, dumb, right. <laughs> the dumb ox, and he wrote these big, big things. And at the end, at the end, he said, you know, compared to the life of faith and love, everything I've written is straw. You know, I mean, he, had, <laughs> but he was a big, you know, intellectual. Uh, but this is the the beauty of it, I think. Uh, well, I've been studying Western culture too, you know, in part because I think. Of course, the biblical tradition is one of the pillars, of course, uh, of at least traditionally of, of the Western culture. Though one might say today, you know, to what extent are we influenced by, you know, truly by the biblical, um, uh, have biblical influences, and then the which represents revelation, and then the Greek philosophers, of course, were dear to the Catholics who picked up reason as a way to approach it. particularly Aquinas picked up reason as a, it's very reasonable to to be able to be a person of faith so his summa is really looks at reason and he picked up Aristotle you know is kind of helping with that Augustine had picked up Plato <laughs> so you think about and but I think Luther was very concerned that that these Greek influences uh, weren't so helpful that was sola scriptorum, just the scripture, you know? But I think one of the things that we're beginning to, to look at is that faith and reason can also be partners. And, you know, John Paul II wrote an encyclical letter. I'm not a super fan about John Paul in terms of his conservatism, but this faith and reason encyclical is really beautiful. He says, you know, these are the kind of the two wings in which on which the human spirit flies, that, that we need to be both faithful and reasonable. And that, you know, we, we shouldn't let faith denigrate into superstition, but neither should the very smart intellectual uh, specialists in philosophy lose sight of a transcendent horizon. 
they should keep it open <laughs> and not get so lost in the minutiae of you know philosophical discourse but there was something you know, to be looked at that's there. why i that's why i like to highlight the experiential the mystical not because i feel like it has greater weight or it's something that needs to be i feel like it's just in general when you hear discussions, it's often about just, you know, abstract ideas. And that's mm -hmm. all well and fine, but this is real life, you know? I want to yeah. know what real life is about. And and ultimately, like, can you, can someone truly be a Christian or a spiritual person without experience, you know, without actually experiencing? Yeah, I don't think it's possible. I don't think anybody, I, I think there's both, the spirit and the truth, you know, uh, Jesus says there's coming a day where they won't worship on the temple mount anymore. But um, I will, those who will worship me will be in spirit and in truth in the spirit. Although obviously spirit isn't, isn't just merely an experience. There is an experience, you know, of the spirit. And I think that's what's so fascinating about it. And I think it's just important to talk about and me with my charismatic background. I think also with my charismatic background, you know, a lot of the emphasis was on experiencing the Holy Spirit, having some sort of experience with God, speaking in tongues. Yeah, yeah. And then, but then the intellectual side of it was lacking in my formation, mm -hmm. my discipleship. In fact, there wasn't really much discipleship on my end. So then I was left with a lot of experience. And then as I grew older, I had to fill in the gaps intellectually. So I don't know, it's interesting. Sometimes a lot of people, it's the opposite. It's like they, they get the intellectual foundation, but they, they're lacking in the experience realm. Um, but I feel like for me, if I hadn't had any experiences, any mystical experiences with God, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's the heart. It's the heart that really, you know, uh, and this is the interesting thing about, you know, sometimes in philosophy too. I mean, someone like Blaise Pascal, uh, who was uh, Jansenist, uh, um, but he, he he said the heart has reasons of which reason does not know, and I think Revelation speaks to a depth of of love that is beyond just argument. Right, reason often leads us into argument, but this is a depth of love that is beyond argument, and this is where the heart is is engaged and uh that's complicated stuff though because the head and the heart need to be in some ways also reconciled don't they 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 need to be friends <laughs> and i i'm not yeah, sure exactly how jesus would do it but he often gave the people who were intellectually attuned particularly because they were legalists right when it came to the heart not being seen see the heart you know you're missing the heart. So, mm. but the heart is easy to miss. Uh, it's hard to love in the sense of, uh, but when you have that experience, like you're talking about, it's what sustains faith over a lifetime. If you're just going to be yeah. an, someone who argues about this or that, or yeah. like an apologist like, or something, it doesn't do it, the it heart gets... kind of good that, it, needs to, it just gets tiring, you know? It's just exhausting, yeah. and, it, and it doesn't really produce much fruit oftentimes. It mostly yeah. just helps 
helps those who are already in the camp build bigger walls oftentimes mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um yeah. that's why i'm not really interested in apologetics very often I'm, I'm more interested in conversations like where are you at what is your journey you know yeah, yeah. And then, um, you know, and then it takes a certain kind of eyes to recognize, you know, oh, you know, you may not know it, but the spirit's working in your life. You know, there's something happening here. You know, you may not know it. You know, the, uh, in Matthew 25, Lord, when did we when did we serve you? When did we clothe you? When did we feed you? Whenever you did it, for the least of these, you did it for me. And I think like part of our, our job as Christians or, you know, People who are fellow travelers on this spiritual journey is like recognizing, hey, did you know that you are serving Jesus when you when you feed the homeless? You are when you're teaching in school, you are serving the risen Lord. You're serving his body. You know, that's like that brings everything into perspective, because then there's no longer this dichotomy of the sacred and the mundane. It's the sacred in the mundane, the sacred in the secular, you know. Um, and I think that's like some, that's a really important work to do is kind of to see those, um, those similarities. Uh, I just a couple of days ago, I had, uh, I kind of hosted a conversation between a Christian and an atheist and it was really cool and fruitful. And what my friend Cal, he just had this way. Uh, it was like, it was this moment and I talked to him afterwards. There was this moment in the conversation where it almost felt as if, Jesus was speaking through him to, to my atheist friend. Mm-hmm. And he was like, hey, you are, you are already connected. You're not far from God. In mm-hmm. fact, in your daily life and your work, you are, you're, you're very connected to Jesus. And you don't even, you, I can see it in your life. You know, I can see it in your words. I can see it in your sentence, in your temperament. And it was just like something really profound about just the way he spoke about that. And I think... It's like, I'd rather do that than apologetics. I'd rather do that than arguing or making random arguments on an abstract level. It's like, it's just, I don't know. Uh, that's my that's my side tangent. Yeah, it, it could be maybe way. important to people who are really called to that kind of work or that kind of charism of, of being a thinker for the church, which can be very important. Um, but I think, you know, we follow our cues, you know. I think one of the things that's, really kind of um, maybe pulls away from the charismatic thing is, you know, not depending on feelings so much. Sometimes we, we, we were looking for this you know, emotional experience. And one of the things about uh, Catholic mystical tradition is, is this thing about it, it comes to a place of a, talk about the dark night of the soul where the feelings are no longer kind of where it's at, but it's a call to deeper faith in the dark you know you're in the dark but you see in the dark you know but you see only by faith in the dark you don't see by sight so this whole this whole thing about also dependence on emotion but the beautiful thing about emotion is the language of love and the language of love is what the mystics really are trying to communicate they try to talk about something that's ineffable that is and when you're in love you really can't communicate exactly intellectually how I love you. You, you put the poets do the best they can with it. You know, the minstrels and the bards and all that. You do with your guitar when you guys start singing about love. You guys know what this is about. Uh, you, you, these are arrows pointing in a direction, right? 
but that the love itself is the is the deal. It's um, it's really beautiful. Um, and one of the one of the people I was drawn to study, and I studied in a Protestant seminary uh, in my later years, uh, were some the writings of Bernard of Clairvaux, who was beloved of of, of Catholics and Protestants alike. Although, although his political history is not, he's a rascal when it comes to politics and and other things. Uh, 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 via V Islam in particular, but. Um, but his his grasp of the heart, the place of the heart, the place of love, and he writes these commentaries in the Song of Songs that are just, you know, sublime. You can tell, as you were saying, like the spirit was using your friend. When I started reading Bernard, it was like the spirit, you know, Jesus using Bernard to speak about the play of love between the creator and the creature. This is really, really where it's at. Um, it's a love thing and it's, you know, God and his people, you know, I think when we get to, you know, look at the biblical revelation in its fullness, we're talking about a wedding feast that's really big. <laughs> God and his people, mm. right? That's how it, that's how it, it it's a, this love thing. And love is uh, delicate and needing to be held need to be held like a, a close to the heart protected so to speak and it's not an easy thing to do peter i think it's it's uh, like in the intense work that we've done in the catholic worker sometimes you can lose that tenderness so you, we might be out there pounding it out but sometimes you know our love is missing you know and there might be someone who who uh is not doing all this you know, kind of intense labor, who keeps it very simple, uh, but keeps this love in their heart, keeps it protected. And that tiny love is really big. <laughs> That's really yeah. big. <laughs> so it's this delicate dance, you know? And, Doing little uh, things with great love. Who was yeah. it? Is that Mother Teresa? That's Therese of Lisieux, the little flower. But yeah, Mother Teresa said it too. She kind of echoed Therese of Lisieux. This little wow. bourgeois French girl who who had a very intimate relationship with God, with Jesus. Little things with great love. That's a beautiful. Yeah, thing. yeah, because it shows that you you don't you don't have to do much, right? It's and you just have to do what's right in front of you. You don't have to. It doesn't have to be groundbreaking, breaking or world shaking, you know. And it's just a matter of doing something. What what is the spirit having you do? And and but the but the what's behind it is a great love, it's the love of Christ, the love of the Father, the Holy Spirit, and and the Son, right there. And you're right in the middle of it all, you know. It's really you that's a it, the the eternal union, you know. And you're right in the middle of that love, and that love just outpours through your life. And then now you are, you're bringing the kingdom of God to earth, mm -hmm. even even in little ways. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, some of us are called to be big mouths, like me, you know, over the years. Although now that I'm older, I'm, I'm a little less uh, what's the word? Strident, strident in my tone. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I still, you know, against war and, and feel I need to speak out against it, like shout like a Jewish prophet, you know, against this madness sometimes. And 
knowing that that's actually a calling to some extent. And then, um, but then the little way, kindness, you know, I, you you caring for those little kids over there. You put them to bed tonight, or your wife did, and you you got to tend to those little ones. And there's a lot of love mm -hmm. there that, that's required. It sure <laughs> and, is. It and sure to is. offer it, you know, that's that's a that's a Christian path. That's beautiful. And mm -hmm. I think you're raising the question of discernment. You know, what is your call? What is your where are you being led or drawn? And sometimes mm -hmm. we're attracted to a a particular way. I was attracted to the Catholic worker pretty powerfully. And then I met mentors in it who helped me to see aspects of it. So it's sort of like my tribe, you know? I found mm -hmm. my tribe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So before we go too far, um, let's go back to your story a little bit. How did you end up in the Catholic worker exactly? What did that look like? And, and maybe you can explain, because I know some listeners will be like, what the heck's a Catholic worker? Maybe you can explain what that is exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the Catholic Workers started as a, a newspaper uh, in New York City uh, that was uh, inspired by um, a vision of Peter Morin, uh, who had been a Christian brother in France, and then he kind of, kind of an itinerant hobo philosopher of labor. Um, and Dorothy Day, who had been a radical leftist journalist who had a conversion to Catholicism, uh, in the late 20s, um, and who was led to care for the poor and workers uh, with a sense that her radical background was preparation, I think, for her Christian vocation of staying connected to the poor and workers. Uh, so they started this newspaper, and then people said, why don't you practice what you preach? And what did they preach? They preached uh, um, Matthew 25, they preached the Beatitudes, they preached uh, in the paper a concern for uh, workers, labor, uh, unions, uh, black folk, uh, migrants, uh, supported the grape strikes of uh, Cesar Chavez and the farm workers in California, the dignity of the worker and the dignity of the poor upheld it. And they ran houses of hospitality in major cities feeding hungry people in New York, in Los Angeles, in Chicago, big cities. Uh, we had a house in Worcester in the late 30s that fed people during the Depression, about 100 people, corner of Austin Street and uh, down by High Street, Matt Talbot House in the late 30s, early 40s. And then the Mustard City, we came along in 1972, but we had a farming community in Hubbardston, the House of Ammon, led by a priest uh, and, and some young people uh, were Catholic workers, and it was offering hospitality to people who came in need, uh, both to the farm and to the inner city houses of hospitality. So feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, sheltering the homeless, visiting the sick, burying the dead, uh, healing wounds, these are the works of mercy, corporal works, the spiritual ones too, counseling the doubtful, instructing the ignorant and so forth. Um, so these works of mercy are the opposite of the works of war. So we see it as kind of a non-symbolic peace plan. But three things that the worker is very practically involved in is these houses of hospitality, the mustard seed being one, we feed maybe about well, lately maybe 60, 70 people a free supper every weekday evening with help of many friends. 
and we've been doing that for like 50 years, <laughs> more or less. And um, we um, clothe people. We try to help with whatever we can help with, and we pray and and uh, work. And we have uh, an agricultural vision, which is a complement to the city houses, farming communes. So we have farms around the country where some are homesteads. Um, are working farms. Some are uh, families that just live off the land as best they can. So there's an environmental ethos at work. Uh, and also we believe in education. So we call these uh, meetings that were even like what we're doing tonight, Peter. Uh, Peter Martin might describe, this is clarification of thought, he would say. <laughs> we're clarifying a thought by talking. So we talk about important things. So we have like topical conversations. We did have one at the mustard seed not that long ago on the social gospel, which is very interesting. You know how in the we have Catholic social teaching, which has a whole body of, of thought. But in the Protestant tradition, there's a whole body of thought too that comes from the social gospel movement that took Sermon on the Mount seriously and, and also social change issues that were meant to work for social justice, economic justice, and peace. Uh, Walter Rauschenbausch up in Rochester, New York, and then in Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan. That was very influential in that movement. Um, so, is that kind of related yeah. to the liberation theology movement? Well, in some ways, there would be uh, some some uh, correlation. Whenever you you're looking at trying to be helpful uh, to people socially around social needs. And maybe this is the, the thing about Jesus also, you know, about uh, uh, seeing the body is important. Uh, not just saying, oh, be blessed and go your way if you're hungry, but, feed, you know, feed them. <laughs> so sometimes I lead towards at the mustard seed. I'm more, more of a tour, glorified tour guide than a, than a big worker these days. And not that I was a big worker in any days, but I tried, tried as a... Uh, to do what I could, but I, I'm a, one of the talkers in the group, but I would lead these tours and I talk about, uh, we get to the chapel and it'd be a little, uh, uh, we have a uh, uh, some artwork there. One is the loaves and fishes is a, an ancient mosaic that was brought from Israel. Um, uh, it was a replica of the one, the ancient one of the loaves and fishes, but, Thinking of that scene at dusk where there's a huge crowd and they're hungry and Jesus says to his apostles, feed them. And they're like miffed, like, Jesus, you gotta be kidding us. Even if we had a lot of do-re-mi, we couldn't feed this many people. And uh, one of them, uh, maybe you'll know, maybe it's Philip, I don't know, one of the, one of the gangs is, says, well, there's a little boy here and he has a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish. And they, you know, they're kind of cynical, some of them. Well, what good is that for so many? But the little boy gives everything he has to Jesus, who multiplies it. And everyone is fed. And there's 12 baskets left over. So usually I'm leaving that tour before the meal for newcomers who come and visit and help out with the meal. So let's see if there's maybe 12 plates at the end of the meal tonight you know, that are left over. <laughs> sometimes there are, sometimes we're making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches because there's more people coming to the door. But that 
miracle of loaves and fishes. It kind of comes alive for us there. And, you know, and I would encourage, you know, if any, any of your hearers uh, would like to come by, to, to come by and see the, you know, and or be part of the uh, uh, serving of a meal and see how that, I think people's faith has been encouraged by an invitation to be a, an athletic Christian, at least in part, you know, to do, do, you know, do things that Jesus asks us to do. And uh, to have faith too, of course, but to do uh, faith that does, and that would be the ideal. <laughs> or doing that is faith also without guided works. by faith. Faith yeah. without works is dead, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think one of the yeah, things also, that sometimes is hard is that those of us who've done a lot of works, it's it's easy to invest in a bit of pride around it, you know? And I think, though, if you really try to do it, you get humbled very quickly. And you realize that, you know, uh, uh, that doing these works leads you to, to a deeper faith because you realize how impossible it is to do uh, without assistance without divine assistance it really is a, a work of god but i think it mm -hmm. you know for me there there were a lot of ego needs i think that went into my you know being drawn to where i was drawn but i think even god uses those things sometimes to bring us to a place you know that god uses you know, unlikely unlikely to be... people to do things that need to be done <laughs> that seems to be a running theme in these discussions that i have is that Oftentimes, it's like people get themselves in a mess, or or they, they, the way they approach God is really in a prideful or sinful way, or like they just want to get something out of God, or they're just trying to stroke their ego. But the beauty of God is He's like playing 4D chess over our um, over our mishaps, and He's utilizing the bad for the good, and yeah. and in it also forming us into His image. Yes, and that's very consoling to to know that, you know. <laughs> yeah, it helps. It helps. But I think that is the process of of uh, discipleship is uh, like Peter, who was very impulsive and so forth, and not self uh, self dependent in some ways. Always, you know, wanting to do the right thing, you know, but but always, you know, jumping in the water and you know, doing things he wasn't really ready to do all the time. Uh, and then being fully humbled, you know, in his betrayals, but then being welcomed back. It was, I think, through failure that, that we as Christians are formed to become disciples that are uh, approved by him. This, this is a complicated matter in, in a way, but in some ways it's simple enough. Um, and we learn in the school of hard knocks, I think, Peter, a little, little bit more, you know, but it's hard, you know, that we all prefer. No, I don't want to have to go to that school. That's the, it's no fun, you know. Uh, yeah. Sometimes the pride, sometimes the prideful side of me is like, yeah, I can take the school hard knocks. But then when I'm there, I'm like, get me out of here. <laughs> yeah, get me out of here. I think yeah. Dorothy Day used to like to quote um, uh, some words on the lips of Father Zosima, who Dostoevsky wrote about in his book, The Brothers Karamazov. And who says, you know, love in reality is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. And uh, Dorothy loved that because she knew it. 
like by experience that this was the case. And a lot of young people in the Catholic worker, including myself, who were drawn to the Catholic worker. I think we we really liked the love and dreams part better, really. But we, you know, we were learning from Dorothy that, you know, if you have the dream of love, you will meet the harsh and dreadful one too. But you, but also you won't be disappointed, you know. I don't think anybody exemplified that more than Jesus, right? Like uh, the ultimate expression of life of love was him dying on a cross, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's not that was not something. I mean, he, he appeared to not even want to do it, you know, when he's yeah, saying, yeah. "Father, let this cup." Yeah, pass. I think he he uh, he had a preference for not having, you know, a very human preference, and I think most of us do too. Um, yeah. It's uh, the cross is uh, when I think of, about it for myself in the best possible light, a healthy light. It's simply the life of of unselfishness versus the life of just self-interest. You know, the, the way of the cross is not the way of the sword, which often is in the service of self-interest. So this is where the pacifism comes in. You know, uh, but it's hard. Uh, we're formed, really, uh, like you were saying, through these these kinds of sculpting that's done through our sufferings and pains and failures and hurt, and but also by our joys and our goodness and our thanksgiving and our. So it's a, this delicate play that's always going on, but as we grow, we do, I think, uh, get a sense of maturing, little by little. By little and by little, I think as Dorothy Day would respond of saying, we, we grow. Um, but so much to consider, Peter, so, so much. You know, oh, and, uh, sure. It's good that you're doing this stuff because you're clarifying thoughts, you know? Exactly. And, well, what's so funny about that is like, um, you know, you kind of have this concept of like apostolic succession in, in church right now. In a sense, it's like the church of the Catholic worker movement you're you're continuing you're passing down this this uh, liturgy of of the clarification of thought from peter morin down to, and you're you're another another uh, priest in the line of the catholic worker word <laughs> in this oh. kind of a you know semi heterodox um analogy you know as as in like the mm -hmm. the little uh, the catholic worker movie is like this little church you know <laughs> yeah 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 and you well it is it is uh, tradition. It, it is kind of very interesting. And, and we have a friend who's a historian, Catholic historian, he taught at Holy Cross and really kind of eminent, nationally known Catholic historian, David O'Brien. You know, and I think he's looked at the Catholic worker for many, many decades as a kind of a historian. And one of the things I think that he's beginning to intuit, and I think our movement is beginning to intuit too, in some ways, is that we've often been seen kind of as edgy. You know, we're on the edges or the fringes of the church. But when looked at maybe more mercifully and tenderly, what we really are is at the center of this work. Mm. Doing the I think the word is, the word is charitably. Yeah. But it looked at more charitably. More charitably. That we're really not on the fringes, but at the center of the teachings of Christ regarding these social issues in particular. 
And in some ways, you know, liberation theology and other theologies, they really come, they're rooted in Christ himself, whose compassion uh, becomes evident in so many, well, of the stories he told people, he would teach using parables and these stories, which you know, the good Samaritan take that one or, or others. And it's often unlikely people who are the ones who end up being the good, you know, the good folk. <laughs> Not the people you expect. So he's always throwing you a, a throwing you a curveball to get you to catch something, which is not totally rational all the time. It's that's where maybe the counterintuitive mystical thing comes in too. You know, try this stuff. Be nice to people who aren't nice to you. What? No. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. No, no, that will work. It will work. Try it. <laughs> <laughs> well come on, Jesus, you know it's it's uh, but i think we're we're all we have all up clay feet we falter but the one nice thing i learned i think and this is from a priest uh charlie emmanuel charles mccarthy is that jesus never kicks the sinner when they're down who says get back up again you know get back up so this is the deeply consoling message to those of us who are struggling disciples, you know, yes, you're going to fall on your face here and there, but come on, get back up, keep going. <laughs> so there's that, you know, that's a help. I think we, yeah, I think we have so much, like the larger church, the capital C church has so much to learn from the Catholic worker movement. And I think, and I see it, it's becoming more and more, more and more prominent voice in people, especially in this age where there's, there's this whole concept, I'm sure you might be semi-familiar, but whole concept of deconstruction. Yeah. And it's basically a lot of Christians who either grew up Catholic or grew up evangelical or whatever, they're kind of, they're not leaving their faith. They're deconstructing their faith and reconstructing it and reimagining it. And in a lot of ways, it's, it's healthy. In some ways, they, they de it's deconversion which is sad, you know, it's sad to see that happen because I don't think it's often that, I don't think it's often because they've made like a fully informed choice to leave. I think it's due to trauma and due to real problems that they've experienced in the church, which is true. But, but I mean, the conversation around the Catholic worker movement and Dorothy Day and Peter Morin, they're becoming more and more prominent figures and people are digging into them as a resource and a wellspring of like this kind of hopeful, look at the world in a sense that um that you know we have the power to do it and and it's not just christians but it's also this this spirit of ecumenism um you know in conversation i know like you got amon hennessy Hennessy who's in conversation with mormons and and you've got dan, dan berrigan who's in conversation with buddhists like Thich Nhat Han, and mm -hmm. you have all sorts of kind of overlap spiritually which i think is really healthy and important to have but I mean, we can speak more about that later. I'd like to really get back to your story of like, how did you start the Catholic Worker in in Worcester, particularly? Well, um, when I left the seminary, I left uh, as a determined uh, Catholic conscience objector against the war in Vietnam. So I was a resistor, um, but a, a legal resistor. And I went, went to my draft board in Whitensville with a file 
that a, a fellow Mike Moran helped me put together from the Ecumenical Council. They had a draft, draft uh, uh, counseling program then. Um, Annabelle Wolfson also um, was very involved. There were some really good people helping young men kind of make conscientious decisions. But I went to a draft board in, um, in Whitensville with my file and the woman, the clerk there, she said, uh, you know, we have Dutch boys in town. They come from a traditional peace church, the Dutch reform. She says, but I'm Catholic and I never heard of anything like this, you know, a <laughs> Catholic laying claim to being a CO. And I said, well, I guess I'll be the first, but Catholic workers had been COs in the past. And, um, and so there was a tradition. Um, now since 30, 1933, a pacifist Catholic stance was taken. But prior to Dorothy, you had Francis of Assisi who gave up being a soldier. You have Ignatius of Loyola who gave up being a soldier, uh, you, who founded the Jesuits. You had all of these guys who uh, gave, put down the sword to pick up the cross. And, uh, and so you know, that's an ongoing conversion motif for me, uh, dealing with my own anger and pain and suffering and hostility. Uh, can I pick up a cross, uh, meaning be uh, gentle and caring and forgiving and all of that. Uh, it's hard, but with grace, uh, hardness can be dealt with. Uh, and this is where I guess I, I, I really find myself in line with Protestant folk, perhaps even Calvinist folk who, who realize you really need grace. <laughs> you know, it's not us it's like you say it's the gift it's not the you know this the our own struggle but it's as catholics though we also have a gift that we put an emphasis on works on doing the works that jesus asked us to do and not seeing that as peripheral to the uh, redemptive uh scene but as part and parcel of it that's where i think where we land in the center sometimes is around that with the works of mercy uh, and the Beatitudes. Um, but we all have different gifts, but the same body. So maybe this is the other the other image of the, you know, the mystical body of Christ, which is at the basis of all Catholic social teaching. But it's also the basis of the social gospel too. You know, it's meeting the needs, genuine needs of people. Uh, so the needs that come up, was a young fellow, Theo, who came from St. Louis. He gave a tuck at the mustard seed, before the big gathering we had at Holy Cross. And he said, see, something needs to be done and, and it, it resonates with you, do it. <laughs> he was saying, you know, that was the message. And I'm like, yes, that's, that's, that's it. And he's, he spent 10 years at the LA Catholic worker where they were feeding like 800 folks in Skid Row, you know, just, I mean, uh, I remember working on that line uh, back in the 80s. I was there, open this two hours just serving uh, the folks who were waiting in this long line, Skid Row in LA, you know, and there's a group of young, young Catholics who were picking up the torch there, uh, that community. They're over 50 years old, too. And uh, so the other thing is young people, you know, we're reaching out to young people to say, you know, come and see, and and you know, uh, does this resonate with you? And there's a few, of course, some in that little group that you and I have been a part of. Our dear friend Boris, of course, has been uh, a faithful. I'm good. I'm going to be talking to Boris pretty soon, and I'd oh, love dear. to hear his story. 
<laughs> and what's so neat about it is like you know his story overlaps with my story overlaps with your story overlaps with brian you know and we'll get into that but really neat well i would say to, add, to answer your question more fully and i'll try to do it briefly it was the anti-war catholicism that led us to to the catholic worker it was more than just saying no to war but saying yes to the works of life so actually doing the positive side of it feeding the hungry you know doing the things that we should be doing not just protesting the things that we were against although that was important too phil berrigan used to tell me that it's just you, you need to say no to the things that need to be said no to that's very important too you know um or maybe even more important on, on occasion he said your lines will get longer if you don't deal with the military industrial complex you know dealing with poverty in this country uh and he had an analysis a radical analysis there it was very uh, precious um so yeah there's uh, mercy there's justice there's all of that but we came to also say yes to life which dorothy had been doing in the early 70s not just no to the war so we ended up doing a traditional catholic worker thing as a storefront first in 72 we started the house in 74 I was living there for the first 10 years. I write about it in my little book here, the 50 years. And if you have, here is really interested in this little book, they can, um, I'm buggable. I've got them at the mustard seed and come by 93 Piedmont Street and on a Wednesday evening, I'm usually there for supper. Um, be glad to share. Yeah, if anybody's, interest, if anybody's interested in Mike's book, I can, uh, I know I have a lot of listeners that are kind of all over the country spattered about and uh yeah if you're interested you can send me a message i can maybe mail it to you or something yeah yeah or yeah, even i don't yeah. know if you have any digital copies too that's a possibility yeah i've been sending out some paper copies around the country uh of late so it can, they can get out they can get out <laughs> uh and then i've got the other book too 15 days of prayer with dorothy day and jerry's book of saints and rascals so we have now three books connected to the mustard seed <laughs> And uh, our story is told there, but our involvement was really triggered in part by that historical moment of that war, the terrible war in Vietnam, and whether we would we would either become soldiers or not. So it was a choice to be, you know, different kind of soldiery, I suppose, like Ignatius picked up, you know, uh, and then. Uh, then uh, the house, we had a fire after 10 years, the house was rebuilt. Uh, there was a former nun who led the house for many decades, actually about three decades, Donna Demisiano. And then the old timers, uh, a lot of us went back uh, when we needed to go back. It seemed the, the right time and, and the circumstances was such that we went back and we've been uh, forming a more cohesive community with younger people, some of us old timers, and they with us. And uh, and so the community has kind of been booming and the work has been going, you know, and the irony, I suppose, is that sometimes people are looking to us for answers. <laughs> we were the edgy people. And now we're uh, people, people uh, looking at us as maybe at the center, <clears throat> excuse me, a bit yeah humbling it's a so yeah we were talking about you had the storefront and then um 
Wasn't there a fire? Yeah, there was a house. Our house uh, at 93 Piedmont Street was a three-decker. And we did radical hospitality there for a decade. Then there was a fire, yeah. And, um, but the house was rebuilt with the support of Father um, Gilgan and, and uh, Bishop Harrington and others who got behind the effort. And all many friends from various denominations, Christians and others uh, who supported us. Um, and a, a state-of-the-art soup kitchen was, was built. Uh, along with a chapel, and so we we have a, a very functional and sturdy building there now, and um, and so we've been you know uh, really serving food. Food has been very important all these years, uh, and you think about maybe the meal, the meal and the the sharing of food is very important. Kind of a Eucharistic. Uh, kind of sharing uh, when you think about um, uh, the sense of thanksgiving that comes from being fed by the hand of God, so to speak, you know, by allowing. And this is kind of a very kind of foray into what we might call Christian economics. It's very maybe different than the way the world looks at it, you know, that all the earth is a gift of creation. It's meant to be shared by, you know, the whole human family and how we organize economic life and how we share our goods and resources with especially the poor and the needy. And so all of that comes into play. Uh, but it's been a witness for all these years. We had a, a priest leader, uh, Father Bernie Gilgan, for many years, who's a civil rights and anti-war priest, peace priest during the 60s and 70s. And, and he was a great preacher, great homilist, and people would uh, really love to hear him. Uh, he was a, <clears throat> a friend of Abby Hoffman, and Abby called him the best movement orator outside of Malcolm X, maybe even better, because he spoke right from the heart. And he would be preaching. He was a devotee of Dorothy Day. And he was a mentor to me and to Abby, too. So I, I think I have another book I want to write about, about sort of the Jewish-Christian uh, friendship and 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 looking at America from a lens that uh, both Jewish and Christian that, that is critical of sort of the, the whole sense of bias and and um, economic disruption based on color or all of that, that that the civil rights movement brought up and the implications of that now and also uh, how economics plays into it and uh, and spirit. So um, we uh, went through a lot of uh, work uh, through the decades devoted to uh, relieving hunger in Worcester and then uh, clothing people. And then now we have also, there's a medical clinic there. We're trying to deal with a drug situation that would become very, very difficult and painful, but thought the medical model was the better, best medical to, to uh, model to follow in that regard. So there's a doctor who does some work there uh, on a weekly basis. And we, uh, we pray, we gather for prayer. Uh, 
And there has been an evolution in that so many different kinds of folks now are helping us, which has opened up not only to Christian ecumenism, but interfaith and, and involvement with civic groups who, who uh, just want have un, uh, humanitarian kind of motives for feeding and caring for other people. And all, all of it, you know, coming together. So we've had Muslim families and Jewish youth. We've had a Hindu group that comes and does a does kind of an Indian meal. We've had um, they, they do this meal in honor of their guru in India. So you have all these spiritual uh, folks and then folks who are just plain old want to be nice or maybe they have political motivation, small p politics uh, to do this work. And so it's a shared labor, you know, in some ways, but we retain kind of our Catholic worker sensibility. <clears throat> and that's something that uh, I think the movement, when it began in the 30s, the Catholic Church was very different than what it is now. We're also dealing with all the crises in our own community, you know, Catholic community and kind of um, a lot of um, a lot of having to cope with very, very serious problems that we have internally. Uh, but also being a witness to the fact that um, this particular Catholic worker lifestyle, it's almost 90 years old now. And it's like, a there is a tradition, a 90 year old tradition now that to lean on and a history and a record. And we had this gathering at Holy Cross brought about maybe 175 to 200 people from around the country and one from Europe, one of the houses in Holland came. And um, so it was very rich and very, very good sharing uh, among uh, intergenerational sharing as well. And a great talent show. A lot of people can sing and and play instruments and tell jokes and a lot of good fun stuff. So it's important yeah. to have some fun yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was really then, neat, the, uh, the whole national event that you guys had you hosted the International Catholic Worker Movement in here in Worcester just a month ago, right? Yeah, in October. That and was really upon cool. The occasion of the mustard seed turning 50 years old. And people came from, uh, you know, the various houses around and farms around the country. And there were workshops on farming and workshops on works of mercy and on peacemaking and it was it was a, a a really great time, and there was a liturgy at the end. It was some prayer and reflection. Uh, all in all, it was great to bring this this group together from these various houses to kind of cheer each other on and cheer each other up, <laughs> kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. And there may be about a dozen or so Holy Cross grads who are. Catholic workers around the country. So we brought a lot of them, kind of kind of brought them back to speak about how they, like you're asking me about how I get into the Catholic worker, asking these Holy Cross folks how they got into it. And mm -hmm. a lot of them from all different places around the country, city houses and farms, and uh, how the Jesuit education influenced them really. So I increasingly I've been drawn to also look at the witness of Ignatius of Loyola, which I think is has been kind of interesting because he um, 
he uh, really deals with a lot of things we were talking about, Peter, like discernment, prayer, uh, personal prayer. Um, he had these exercises, of course, that he did uh, with his friends, and then it spread, and uh, uh, he founded the Society of Jesus. And I, when I think about maybe um, the work, the ecumenical work, uh, we're interested in a Society of Jesus, aren't we? And a, big scale, you know, <laughs> that the, the society that is influenced by Jesus, we le would lead by example uh, and invite people into, into uh, you know, as an invitation to, into conversion. And I think the other yeah, thing can I is- ask you a, Can I ask you a question kind of related to that? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, and I asked this because I was kind of having conversations with someone recently, and there's a lot of discussion these days about this concept of nationalism and specifically Christian nationalism. And, but, um, you know, generally that, that type of Christianity is specific, is specifically in, or um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, specifically, yeah, I guess specifically or exclusively a right-wing kind of Christianity politic, you know, yeah. and, and I guess like, is there, do you think there's any rooms to be a Christ follower and a nationalist? Well, like this is a- I guess it's, it's, it's complicated. It's complicated, but I think, uh, I think one of the things that we, uh, we struggle with with the Catholic worker is if, that if you uh, really take up that biblical lens, sort of the way that uh, Bath kind of picked it up in Germany, and, and, and you put that critical lens on American nationalism, you wanna step away from that stuff, that right wing stuff. That's not, no, that's not good. And I think, I think this is um, something that Stringfellow addressed in his wonderful book there, An Ethic of Christians and Other Aliens in a Strange Land. I'm not sure, I don't think it's in print anymore, but uh, it's, a, it's a book that speaks to America as, as Babylon, but all countries, that uh, are about empire as being um, uh, uh, needful of resistance, Christian resistance. So when I think about also Germany and it had cause to think about it today and the kind of anti-Semitism, the kind of white national you know, supremacy of stuff that's going on and some people claiming, you know, using the Christian gospel as justification for this. There's nowhere in Christian gospel, I think where you can find find really justification for this. And we see so other thing it's tied to militarism and hatred is that how is it that, you know, like in Germany, you know, people would say that, well, what about Hitler? If you're a pastor, how would you deal with Hitler? Well, you know, Hitler was formed um, uh, in an experience of war, World War One, but he, he uh, came out of a lot of woundedness and he, um, he fomented a, a culture based on hate. And we're seeing a revival of this type of thinking in, our, in the United States, uh, which has a lot of parallels with the kind of woundedness that you know, Hitler is coming out of around uh, resentfulness among sectors of our American population and laying claim to some kind of Christian thing. Now, Bath and others would say, no, no you cannot lay claim to a Christian view of that. And, was a, there was a lot, a lot of Christian resistance to Hitler, but there was some, 
and the White Rose Movement was a group of young Protestants, most was one Catholic among them. Very important Christian resistance to Hitler on Christian grounds. Uh, you had the, the sign is the Bauman Declaration. Among them was Bott. You had a Jesuit priest, Alfred Delp, who was part of a group uh, opposed to Hitler. So you had Christian opposition, but not nearly uh, the kind of opposition that was needed. And so many Christian boys would fight, fought for him, you know, sent troops to gas ovens and so forth. How, how, how was it that Christian boys would sign up and then bomb Iraq, you know? Uh, and just, you know, so many innocents dead and slaughtered and mm. how, you know, and Christian boys, you know, and their jets, you know, it's just like a video game, you know, taken, it just, how is it that uh, we could justify that in Christian grounds? I don't think we can. And this is where maybe yeah. our professions of faith and our behaviors we're being asked to align them as best we can with God's grace. And so I think about uh, Christian um, non-resistance, Christian education around not returning evil for evil uh, as being uh, something that's not very popular, but very, very needed. Uh, it doesn't mean that you don't, you don't resist uh, violence uh, on the part of others, but it means you don't return it in like manner. So we, we're not very sophisticated in, in you know, learning nonviolent resistance, but there's a, a, a great history of it. And uh, we, you know, the Quakers did a pretty good job of it, I think. We can look to them and other mm -hmm. groups that have, have, have really, for instance, treated Native Americans properly as Europeans when they came mm -hmm. or, uh, or opposed slavery by having the, you know, running the Underground Railroads, you know, helping to run them up to Canada, help people to get to freedom. These these are the examples that I think we need, uh, moral examples of our Christian yeah. witness. Uh, oh, for sure. Not, not, a, not a, a violence that uh, says, you know, yeah, that we need to return to just white people or, um, uh, or uh, it, like the Aryan race type thing. <laughs> No purity so, in that. So I want to be charitable because it really this comes down to like an issue of language. Really, you're just helping me process this this line of thought because in my conversation recently, in I, I was talking to someone who lives down in the south, or kind of like uh, I don't know, maybe more. Uh, I don't know more more of a culture that's in a culture where like if you said you're a christian nationalist up here in massachusetts people would look at you funny but if you said you're a christian nationalist down in the south you'll be like okay that sounds i think you're kind of on the right track but oftentimes they'll qualify and they'll say what they mean by that is that they would like to see you know christians in office they would like to see what it means is they'd like to see america be a christian nation with christian ethics and morals and I guess, like, that looks what there's just something about there's something that just throws up a red flag for me when I think about that. Um, and I, I can't really put my finger on it particularly, but I think it has something to do with, you know, mainly when people say they're Christian nationalists, it's very partisan. They don't they're not they're not looking to communicate with both sides and work together because this is not like one side is more righteous than the other. There's righteousness that runs through both, I think. You know, I don't think it's a it's a false dichotomy to say like, 
right and left, one's evil and one's good, one's good, one's evil. I don't think that's necessarily true, and I don't think that's charitable or fair. But like, so I don't know. It's very interesting. What would you say to someone who's like, well, I'm a Christian nationalist. But what I mean by that is, I want Christians to affect positive change in mm-hmm. politics, particularly. I just don't know how the nationalism really. I think it's a definitional issue, maybe. You know, and in other words, you know, do you have to be a nationalist in order to affect positive change in 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 a nation? You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, it's a good question to raise. Um, the thing about I think getting beyond national boundaries now is very important. When we're dealing with a climate crisis, it needs to be addressed. We shouldn't be building more nuclear weapons or more bombers. We sh- we should be trying to fight this war against climate change together. We should try to find what common ground we can with other groups. And the other thing is that Jesus, I think, he's inviting us. He invites people to conversion, not not to be into a coercive relationship to be, a, be himself. And I think this is the other thing is that we, you force people into conversion. Uh, that, that's not the best way to, to, to bring about conversion. And all law, if you get into Tolstoyan nonviolence, all law is based on coercion. You know, uh, so this gets very iffy because there are good laws, you know, like you should stop at red lights. You know, we, we ought to pass a bottle bill so we can recycle stuff. You know, we, things that um, can be good. But there are also laws that 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 um, that offend the dignity, you know, of human beings or the freedom of human beings. And I think the other thing is, you see, Jesus, he 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 invites people. He doesn't force people places so much as invites people places. Well, the rich young man, he walks away. He walks away sad. Jesus is sad, and I mean. I mean He's not sad, but Jesus is sad and he's walking away. Uh, but he, does, he doesn't chase them down and says, I'm going to pass the law so that you, you have to come into this Christian thing that I'm doing. But maybe, you know, maybe that needs to be looked at. Does Jesus, how does Jesus corral folks, you know? <laughs> Our folks need to be corralled. Is, is that part of the picture? Maybe you're raising a question on how some people are looking at that. But if you think about Christian values, what does a Christian value look like? And I think that's the other interpretive lens. Does does a Christian value uh, mean that you redistrict so that certain folks don't get a chance to have, you know, uh, or they redline, you know, so so certain people can't live in certain neighborhoods, or they, you know, or uh, uh, or you look at the race, problem racism. with the incarceration rate, you know, yeah. Yeah. Those are all legal things, or the war on drugs, all legal things that have disproportionately affected one group over another, even sometimes to the advantage of others, especially when you talk about redlining. You're talking about, you know, predominantly white neighborhoods where black people are not allowed, you know, and even if they were allowed, I mean, I mean, obviously things have changed now. I'm sure there's still racism for sure, but, but when you think at a time when maybe they did start to loosen up some of those boundaries and neighborhoods, even if you went there, there was there was de facto no no issue, but but in experience, it'd probably be outed out of the neighborhood just by being different race, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think there are parts of the country that, uh, and people who are 
committed to some other sense of where power should be held. There's white people should be holding the power and white Christians, so-called Christians. But I'm not so-called, I think it's more, sometimes a, a so-called is, uh, is I think something to look at because what did Christ really teach? <laughs> did he teach you should injure someone because their skin color is different? Or you should give them a, you know, uh, uh, non-preferential treatment. No, he said to give the poor preferential treatment. Those who are her preferential treatment, not to discard mm -hmm. them or put them on the you know dung heap of of uh, you are a disposable part of our community because you are not this, you are not that. So th there's all of that to be worked through, I think, Peter. And it's a lot. I agree. Mm, it is, and it's hurtful to even be engaged in in the thing throwing the thing around a lot because you know that, again, I think there's a thing around around ignorance, but I don't know, you think of maybe the, the um, what happened with lynching in the South, people making, you know, Christians, you know, like how could they, how could they justify that on Christian grounds? How could that be justified by the you know, Klan to say, say we were a Christian organization uh, or anything? thing like that so there's all of that to be threaded through and and looking at all of that for me martin luther king is a great hero and he was for for uh i think for dorothy day as well was seen really as kind of a saint i think uh, for many other of us and when pope francis came to address both houses of congress he raised up four americans he thought were important and they were uh you know two were protestants and and from uh you know, he said, uh, talked about uh, Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. And then he said, Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton, a Trappist monk, spiritual writer, who was a civil rights activist, even, even as a hermit, <laughs> Thomas Merton, mm -hmm. and an anti-war activist. And um, as uh, models or examples, and I think that they're the more, they're the examples we need today more than more than some kind of white nationalist thing or you know which and we're always often saying we're supreme over you know this country or uh there's no respect for you know the fact that there could be a room in a christian purview for pluralism and i think you know that's something to be looked at uh and then there's um of course uh the way we look at money and economics and I think a lot of this has to do with business, business and, and how business and capitalism and all of that kind of gets played out with regard to, uh, you know, who, who controls what and how things are organized. So there's a lot to be worked through. Yeah. There is. And I think, you know, in, the, in the sense of the mustard seed, our little work is so modest, but we, we, we're calling for a society that's that is makes it easier for people to be good. And one of the young Catholic workers from Los Angeles is he's one of the young new workers. He says he wanted to add a little something onto it, but makes it harder for people to be bad. What if we had a country that worked on that? Yeah. Socially, what if that's know? what we thought? It, you know, it, it, that's <laughs> in general, that's like the preventative model of things, right? It's, but instead, we tend to be more reactive. We react to things. We react to this. We react to crime. We react to drugs, rather than or we we react to cancer or we we react to 
um, the opioid epidemic, rather than being proactive, rather than being preventative, and it's so often that's the case. You know, another thing about um, nationalism that kind of popped in my mind is this, the whole concept of, you know, nationalism is kind of centered around this idea of America first. It is not to say, it's, it's more by priority, right? It's not to say that nationalists don't necessarily believe, I'm trying to be charitable. Okay. <laughs> um, it's not to say nationalists don't necessarily believe in cooperation with other countries. It's just this this idea of America first. I think what's what's hard is when you when you put that next to the Sermon on the Mount, you have the first shall be last, the last shall be first. I think when you when you start putting your yourself first or your own people first, that should be a red flag for any Christian, right? Yeah. 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 I think. Yeah. And it's hard to be, uh, you know, not self-concerned, uh, particularly in a troubled time. So, you know, you cut some people slack because they're so self-concerned, they're afraid, you know, what are they afraid of? They're afraid, of, they don't know how to live in an interracial world. They don't know, know how to live in a pluralistic world. But it seems to me that as Christians, we should be, uh, able to live in a way that attracts people to the faith rather than people who say we want to control everything you know we, and this is a matter of faith isn't it because if we really need to trust in god <laughs> this is the other <laughs> thing we should not be so worried about about uh, so many things uh, there was a, you know, Sojourners magazine before they were Sojourners, they called themselves uh, the Post-American was their magazine. And it was a biblical, they came out of the Batian tradition, but they were putting Christianity, uh, the cross before the flag, you know, putting Christianity in the forefront. And that wasn't Christian nationalism, it was Christianity they were trying to give, give a, 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 a more weight to, as opposed to kind of allying it with all of these, you know, uh ties to to the kind of you know um uh america that had sadly uh two big original sins the uh, uh, genocide of native america and slavery um, mm. where you know came from you know some european sensibilities and you know as christians who were persecuted who came here we should have known better you know, in our relationships across the board. And I think the Quakers did pretty good. That's why I look to them in some ways for an example or some light on how to behave via the Native you know, American. I was, talking to, I was having a conversation with an Eastern Orthodox priest the other day, and he was talking about how, um, you know, because Alaska used to be a part of Russia, so the Eastern Orthodox came from Russia to Alaska right. to, to help the settlers. And mm -hmm. the settlers actually didn't like the priests because the priests were trying to defend the dignity of the life of the natives um and the settlers were like who cares about them we're just trying to reap resources and and take over territory so i think i thought that was really it was really um i don't know encouraging to hear that like even in the eastern tradition there was there's this anti xenophobia you know um mm -hmm. and even within i feel like modern catholic you know when you look back the 60s and 70s who was it? Which religious group was most supported the war efforts in Vietnam? It was, unfortunately, 
uh, my spiritual tradition, <laughs> but you know, the white evangelical tradition was mostly the ones. For, uh, um, and then you had like the mainline Protestant who was against the war. You had most Catholics, I feel, that were against the war. I'm sure there were some for it, but but it's just uh, you know, it's it's still it's tough because who's the predominant force? When it comes to religious life yeah, in yeah. America, it's the and white evangelical. You raise a good question here you know, when you think about the question of nationalism. I mean, we do want to have some influence as Christians in a social realm, but what should that influence look like? What kind of what kind of cultural reference should it come from? And it seems to me that the, the current one that we we we've just seen play out in the last last, I don't know how many years now we want to talk about. I don't know. Six years, it. seven years. But I, I think it's uh, it's not someplace we want to go. It's it's a, it's sadly, and I think maybe I put it very, very, I could put it very, very bluntly. You know, how could people committed, at least in the ideal to democratic values, flirt with fascism? I'll put it that bluntly, mm. you know, for, for to what ends? Would we do that? You know, I mean, uh, yeah, very painful stuff. And I think of this too as sort of sort of what was happening in Germany as maybe a model, because mm -hmm. what happened with Germany, it didn't, it snowballed. It 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 got to that place where people could do terrible, terrible things because hatred had been whipped up, that hysteria had been whipped up, it really been whipped up, and I think. The thing about Christian nationalism, and I uh, and I hesitate to use the word Christian before it, it gets identified that way, but it's whipping up that kind of stuff, and we should. That is not what Christ had in mind, <laughs> no, in my opinion, or my reading of Scripture. Yeah, you know, I think just from like my own meditations and listening to others, I think how do Christians affect? positive change within society, within politics, within the greater world around us. I think it's it's going to look something like Jesus, you know? It has to, right? It has to look something like laying down power, laying down rights, laying down privileges. I mean, he laid down, what does Paul say? He, Jesus laid down his privileges, even um, emptied himself almost of, yeah, yeah. Uh, in order to die on the cross you know and that's the ultimate expression of love and and as a community as us being the body of christ like how should we operate i think we should operate in in a cruciform way right um and then what does that look like affecting change i think it comes from it's coming up from below rather than ascending to power and power money and um uh, that, that's where corruption is it's like we have to affect change from below and starting with ourselves and that word right mm -hmm. I imagine. Yeah, yeah 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 and i think the other thing is that love is powerful i mean this is the other thing is we sometimes we don't think of love as powerful or we think of it as weak but but love uh the power of love is stronger than love of power ultimately i mean that's our faith i think that's what jesus was trying to say um with his, the gift of his self uh, and this redemptive act, um, that the power of love would triumph. And the, the pledge of that was, the, you know, uh, the vindication of the nonviolent cross and the resurrection of Christ is that 
love will triumph over this stuff, ultimately. The sad part is that often, like you look at Germany at that confessing commun community, they were often martyred and killed. King was killed, you know, the Kennedy brothers were killed. Uh, people were killed over political stands that were taken or views that were taken. And then I think you looking back at that historical thing and the way people are influenced by media. And I think, again, the other thing about social media and how it's been used, you know, to, to also whip up this stuff, you know, uh, and who benefits from it. So I guess that's the other kind of question. Who's benefiting from, from say, uh, whipping up a spirit of hatred or enmity? <laughs> Yeah, and you know maybe you know you think of ordinary people. I think if they saw the effects of what this thing is actually doing, you know, mass shootings, all the things that we've been seeing played out in different ways, the attack on the Capitol, all of that, which is not to put all the all the eggs in the civic basket at all regarding this whole debate, but to put it on the human heart. How are we treating each other? You know, really. Mm. You know. How are yeah, we even each just in the, even just like at the in the smallest units of just like our friendships, our families, our our mm -hmm. immediate community. You know, how yeah. does how does that look? And then that's going to affect the, the larger picture. And as I think, you know, it's it is sad when I think about it, like the disruption that the past eight years have been <clears throat> to, as a society. It's really, it's, it's going to be a lot to recover from. Yeah, and, yeah. But at the same time, I, I'm hopeful that, you know, just like that whole concept of God playing 4D chess, 5D chess above it all, and taking the bad and turning it into good, I yeah. mean, in the larger meta sense, just like he does with us in our individual lives. Yeah. So, I mean, you know. As it's a wake-up call for us all, isn't it? Yeah, it is a wake-up sure call. Is. Yeah. It sure is. And if you look at someone like myself or someone like Boris, you know, we've had, we've both experienced a lot of change in who we are, who we think we are, just in the past, like, two years or so, for sure. And, and it's because of people like you and, and other people in our lives that have affected change just by being living models, living saints, living light of Christ, you know? Well, you so, know, uh, I, I have to uh, admit I'm kind of a rascal, uh, Peter. I, oh, that's, yeah. My wife keeps telling that's me that's how, that's how I get away with things. I keep, I keep making excuses for myself by saying I'm a rascal, really. It is true that I am. But it is true we've also been very blessed in the direct service thing of the mustard seed, the work from the bottom up which I think is the way the politics needs to be done. It's actually part of Catholic social teaching and subsidiarity. You start at the lowest level. I think even ardent Republicans could agree with that. You know, some of them that are really fiscal conservatives, but then not into all of the cultural pain that gets hoist, hoisted on certain people. Uh, but the idea of starting from the bottom uh, with politics from the bottom is that, that it's respectful, you know, of the people who are uh the recipients of the decisions that are made so there's that whole question of process and and one of the nice things i think that's been very gratifying for me is to think of even though it's been very hard to do that that doing the christian thing 
from the bottom up seems to be the right thing to do. And we're in a crisis now with the top-down version. <laughs> so the bottom-up version keeps reminding me that I think that maybe Jesus is, and the Spirit is up to something. With mm. regard to, to, oh, you know, yeah. Well, you know what's so beautiful about that is, isn't that how God operated in the gospel, right? How beautiful that is. God did not just affect change from the clouds, from the heavens. He came down, he incarnated, and then he worked his way back up, you know, from the bottom and, and, and dragged us all up with him. You know, <laughs> that that's that's the way of Christ. It's that cruciform pattern. That's a really beautiful. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think the other thing is the, you know, when we look at the interior life, uh, that, you know, that what comes, well, St. Paul talks about a fountain. A fountain, you know, within that 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 kind of bubbles up, you know, to the surface. I think this is the other thing is that the kingdom of God is within us. You know, the reign of God is within, and as we attune ourselves to that reign, um, through thick and thin, and it's a lot of thick, a lot of thin, and we begin to get glimpses of that reign in a way that, if we keep at it, it becomes more. Uh, of an abiding view rather than a glimpse. And you begin to get a sense of, of, uh, of how God's ways are not our ways, you know? That, that it really is this power of love versus the love of power. Uh, but there is a power in that love, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> that that, you know, is the ticket. Yeah. Wow, Peter. Yeah. I, I mean, this has been a great discussion. I love I love how it's turned out, too. I think we have a lot that we could riff on for hours and hours. <laughs> we could go obviously. on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Obviously, I want to respect your time. and But um, unfortunately, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you want to go I for mean, it? Yeah. How many more hours should we go? Yeah. Yeah, we can go. You'll go all night. We'll just keep talking. But you know, they used to have this kind of a college down in uh, North Carolina called Black Mountain. It was an experimental college. Buckminster Fuller taught there. But sometimes the students, they would they would be with a professor in a class, like a poetry class or something. They wouldn't want to stop. They would go all night. They would keep going. They could stay. They'd go like a two or three day marathon. I don't know how they did it, but... Uh, I did have well, on one occasion uh, a, a group of folks who wanted to do this kind of stuff for ongoingly, and I said, "Hey guys, I gotta go to bed. <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta crash. I'm an old man, I know." But you know, Peter, yeah. I'm very grateful for this time, and thank you for hearing me out. I, I would apologize, oh, maybe for some of your uh, for some of your hearers, maybe my tone was very strident around some of the political things. But I, you know, I think sometimes I think it's, it's in it sometimes is in order when you're having to deal with some really heavy stuff. And I think right now we're really dealing with heavy stuff. We really are. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's uh, just questions that have been, you know, questions that are burdening my mind and my heart. And and I felt like, you know, you have these years of wisdom and you've been meditating on this whole question of what do Christians do with politics? And and it is a question. It's a it's it's a, a really important question. Whether yeah. it's lower P politics or upper P politics, yeah. and I, you know, I think 
honestly, sometimes for different people in different places, it looks different and the answer might be different, you know, and, and it really yeah, depends yeah. on your context. It's not this black and white thing. And I think that's really what's really important too, is like recognizing that, you know, the spirit's doing what it needs to do and in, in and out of people's lives. And yeah, I mean, I think we'll definitely have to chat again sometime, maybe in the next few months or so. And, and I'd like to get more into some of your influences. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about Peter Morin and Dorothy Day, their philosophy, like the communitarian personalism, really interested in that. And then, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we can talk a little about Eamon, Eamon Hennessy. And I, I mean, I'm really curious what your thoughts are on like, you know, where, what is the, the benefits of communication between like, your faith, you know, um, communication between, I know like definitely you got Eamon Hennessy and Dan Berrigan who are communicating even with Buddhists like Thich Nhat Hanh and whatnot. And I've been reading that, that I don't know if, did you ever read the book, The Rock is Not the Shore? Yeah, I'm familiar with it. Uh, I met Nyan Han. He made a, a, I think maybe I mentioned one of the groups that he made a, a little oh, really? supper for us. And I was talking too much, you know, it, it was outside of Paris. <laughs> and I was telling my companions from the mustard seed that they should talk. And Nyan Han looked at me and he says, no, Michael, it is not that you talk too much, but that you eat too little, have more soup. And that was my introduction to Zen Buddhism. And really? uh, he was a very... A very beautiful and gentle soul who wrote a book about Vietnam, The Lotus in the Sea of Fire. Yeah. And of course, as a young, a young Catholic worker who was opposed to that war, meeting him and knowing his suffering, uh, it was he was someone who knew how to lead uh, from the bottom up, Nyat Han. He can teach That's us. Wild that you met him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, did you meet ben, Dan Berrigan too? Oh yeah, yeah. Dan and I, friends. Yeah, yeah. And you did you meet Dorothy too, right? Yeah, yeah. Sure, yeah. Was Peter around still? No, he died before I was born. But I, I do no feel cl close to Peter Moore. He died in 1949. I was born in the early 50s. And wow. uh, but I knew I've met people who who had met Peter. Yeah. So that yeah hey, yeah. That's what's so neat. I mean, it really is an honor to talk to you because, you know, you've you've been around, you've you've been honestly seeking and and wrestling with God and wrestling with with what do we do in this world. And not only that, you're living it. And I think that's what's really beautiful too. And and it makes it makes a, a change. It's, it changes the spirit of the people around you. It's like you're you're dragging heaven to earth, you know, and, and it's really beautiful to see. Oh, very, very kind estimation. Uh, we give, <laughs> give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. That's for sure. Mercy, mercy, mercy. We need it. <laughs> there mercy, we go, have mercy on me. Well, thank you so Amen. much. I'm going to stop this recording. Okay. All good. Thanks so much. Lord, Lord, the nature of your wrath It's not an easy path But I'm willing to trust Though I'm dying in the dust